narrative of the hour is triumph. There is victory over the grave for people who have placed their whole trust in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ in that only. We are a people who understand, O oh God, that it is not my works of righteousness that we have done. There is, no, uh, there is no good in us. Our works before you are as filthy rags, but that doesn't mean that we've lost. We have a perfect sin bearer. We have a perfect representative. We have a perfect surety. We have one whose vicarious work means redemption and release for us. Indeed, O oh God, the word of the hour is triumph. Triumph over death. Triumph over sin. Triumph over failure. And Father, we are a people who look forward to a day that because of that triumph worked for us by Christ Jesus, we will spend an eternity where there is no more sin and there are no more tears. And all of that we've cried have been stored up in a bottle as our Savior will greet us, reminding us that there are no more tears that await us. Oh God, the, the emphasis of our souls this morning is that we have found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. We found our resting place in Christ Jesus and Him only. It is what He did for us that brings us such joy this day. Oh God, might our worship be pleasing in your sight. We have not come to spectate. We understand that this room is filled with worshipers, either good ones or bad ones. But Father, it is not dependent upon what they will hear from this podium. That our worship is, is aimed and designed to bring you pleasure. And I pray that you remind each and every one of us, O oh God, that we are participating, whether we do that poorly or whether we do that well, we are participating that we are performing before the grand celestial audience of one, the audience that is the triune God. And he watches, he observes, he takes note of the hearts that are engaged and the hearts that are dull, the hearts that are warm and the hearts that are cool. But we come, O oh God, to bring you something that we hope will bring you pleasure, all in response to the great work done for us by Christ Jesus the Lord. Oh God, we set aside a period of every worship service for us to give. It is a gift in response to the gift. We are people who understand that we are debtors to grace and that we will never, on this side of heaven or the other, we will never outgive the God who gave us first new life in Christ Jesus. And from hearts that are new, brand new, we love to give. Take these gifts, O oh God, and advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ in our midst. That is why we give them and beg you to use them just like that. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen.
<clears throat> the reason I say that is uh, you may not remember, but we're trying to finish out our study of the Gospel of Mark. And several weeks ago, I told you that that I was going to try and um, preach through the last six chapters of Mark thematically. And um, this resurrection story is one of the reasons that prompted me to do that, because it's really found, in the last six chapters, it's found several places. For instance, if, you're, uh, if you can find Mark 12, I'm not going to read this, but beginning at verse 18, there's that discussion that Jesus has with the Sadducees about the, um, the existence of a resurrection and life after it. <clears throat> that whole passage from 18 to 27 is about resurrection. Then you turn to chapter 13, and you find uh, there again Jesus predicting his resurrection when he talks about, you know, these, this building is going to be destroyed and it's going to be rebuilt in three days. That's in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And then you go over to um, chapter 15, <clears throat> and there you have the whole burial uh, story, beginning at verse 42, uh, Mark 15, 42. And then you come to the end of the, the, of the Gospel of Mark, at chapter 16, and that's going to be our text this morning. I'm going to read you the first 13 verses of Mark 16. So follow as I read from this portion of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Then he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, <clears throat> but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, it endures forever. You know, ladies and gentlemen, in the history of the world, only one tomb has ever had a rock rolled in front of it. And a soldier stationed next to it to see to it that a dead man stayed in there. 
kind of the most ridiculous thing you have ever heard of, I, I would think. What could be more ridiculous than a group of armed soldiers gathering around a corpse to make sure that he doesn't budge? Now listen here, you better stay, you better stay in there. It, it really is rather ludicrous. Uh, not a very fair fight. Why in the world are soldiers assigned the responsibility of keeping a dead man still? My point in saying that, ladies and gentlemen, is that his enemies, as you know, had heard Jesus talk about the fact that he was going to resurrect, and they took it very seriously. And the paradox is, I think, that um, they took it far more seriously than did his friends. Um, the, the enemies had heard all those claims, and they, they were far more serious about those claims than were the people who were his followers. The scene that I've just read you in, in Mark 16 is a picture of three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And, and really the emphasis, the focus is on Mary Magdalene. But uh, three women who come to the cemetery early in the morning with burial spices. Um, now, gang, um, by their bringing the burial spices, you learn a little bit about the purpose of their going. Uh, they were not headed over to the cemetery to greet the risen Savior. They were going to anoint a dead body. They, they were going to grieve over the death of their beloved. Now, this indeed is an act of love, but it's an, it's an act of despairing love, an, an act of unbelieving love. Gang, these ladies are bringing some burial spices with them with, for a very practical reason. The, the spices were designed to cover the stench of decay. They weren't bringing them to start a party. The point is, they all went over there without the least shred of anticipation or expectation that they were going to meet somebody alive. And then in verse 3, what you find there is a, is a question that, that flows out of a heart that has little, if any, faith. They only knew that they were up against men, strong men, armed men. Uh, they were up against powerful governments and recognized religious authorities and a big rock and um, so they wonder you know we got these burial spices here but how in the world do you think we're going to be able to use them look what we're up against B but again all of that those forces that were arrayed against them had had caused them to conclude that jesus's cause was really quite over all of their their hopes were dashed and, and I might point this out, gentlemen, um, just, to, uh, just to underscore, if, if the women were guilty of unbelief, what do you think the men were guilty of? They didn't even show up. They didn't even take the trouble to go over there, maybe, maybe still so frightened by uh, the events of two days prior. But uh, anyway, when these three women get to the tomb, 
they, they discovered that the stone has been rolled away and that the body is gone. But even then, they don't jump to the conclusion that, oh my goodness, he's resurrected. No, no. Um, they have a question. And the question is, uh, you know, what'd you do with him? Where are you taking him? We want to go take care of him. Where, where, where'd you put him? And then there's that fellow in the, in the white robe sitting in the tomb. And, and um, by the way, I, I'm convinced that I've been in that tomb. You know, in Jerusalem, there are two locations that are, that are um, billed as the, the, the burial tomb of Jesus. And one of them, uh, I'd love to show you. I'm convinced I've been in that tomb. I, I, I'm convinced that I can, I can tell you about what she's referring to when she says the right side. But, but be that as it may, um, they, um, they ask this fellow, you know, where, where did you put him? Here's poor Mary Magdalene, who, um, who, by the way, is pointed out in the text that she had had somewhat of a resurrection herself. She's the one that had seven demons cast out of her. But all these women, exhausted from the events of Friday, um, but the only thing that they have in their mind is they want to find out where that corpse is so that they can spill some more reverential tears all over him. Not a one of them. Not a one of them. Even after they discover that he's not in there anymore and that uh, the rock's gone, not a one of them hastens to the conclusion that he is resurrected. And then, later on, Jesus does appear to this Mary Magdalene, the, uh, the one before whom Jesus appears for the first of his 11 uh, post-resurrection appearances, and he gives her an assignment. Go tell the other guys. Which really is somewhat odd, because according to Jewish law, women were not, were not allowed to bear testimony. So she runs to find Peter and the guys to tell them that she has seen the resurrected Lord, but they don't believe either. All this evidence that is mounting up, and they, they really don't budge. Um, here comes Mary Magdalene to tell them that she's just absolutely certain that Jesus is resurrected, you know, according to what he taught us all over those three years. And, um, and they just conclude, oh, you know women. You know, they get a tad carried away. Just like... Just like people do today when we, when we talk to them about a resurrected Savior, and they can go, all oh, those Christians, they get a tad carried away. But, but I really would like to point out to you, ladies and gentlemen, that what we're facing today in the 21st century is nothing new. Uh, the, the, the incredulity of the 21st century is nothing compared to the lack of belief that we found in the first. And, and what I mean by that is, it's not compared because the unbelief that we find described here comes out of the mouth of people who spent three years of their life with him. Three years being taught that, I was gonna, that he's going to resurrect. Three years walking around seeing miracles uh, here and there. Three years of witnessing the life and ministry of this man. And they still don't believe it. The skepticism of the 21st century is nothing compared to theirs. I mean, the skeptic of today doesn't have all the advantages that those guys had. Why, at least they had three years of training. 
just to, to, to pause for a, an aside for a moment, there is a story about Muhammad that I thought was apropos. Um, tradition says that when Muhammad died, that his sidekick, his number one assistant, was a guy by the name of Omar. And Omar rushed out of his tent where Omar had just died with his sword in hand, and he declared that he was going to kill anybody that uh, uh, said anything about Muhammad having died. My point is, Jesus had no Omars. They were all ready to believe that he died. In fact, I, I, I wondered about angels who were watching this whole thing. They understood that he resurrected, but they couldn't understand why he died. Well, his followers, they understood that he died, but resurrection, oh no. They weren't, they weren't prepared for this. Not an Omar among them. Oh yeah, he died, he's dead, I saw him, we put him in the, in the, in the tomb over there. He's dead. No, 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 but you know, he's not there anymore, the body's gone. Oh no, you don't know what you're talking about, he's dead. So quick, so ready, so willing to believe that he was dead, but nobody really willing to believe that he had, had risen. Gang, um, I say all of that to say this. When I read this text uh, several weeks ago, there was something that leapt out to me about it, and I hope it did to you. What would you say is the dominant theme of the first 13 verses of Mark 16? Well, I want to suggest to you that the dominant theme of the first 13 verses is the unbelief of the people who were supposedly his followers. Gang, it's mentioned four times. It's mentioned in verse 8, verse 11, verse 13, and verse 14. I didn't read, but it's woven into the story several other times. It's the dominant theme of this resurrection event is the unbelief on the part of people who said they followed him. You know, I, um, I went back as I studied this and I tried to find how many times Jesus told them that he was going to resurrect in his three-year ministry. I found ten in the first three Gospels. I found three in the Old Testament. I, I want you to see one of them. It's in Mark. Just see if you can find Mark 9 real quickly. Mark 9. I just want to read you one verse out of Mark 9. Jesus taught that he was going to resurrect some ten times, in the, in, in, in maybe numerous others. But listen to this. This is verse 31 of Mark chapter 9. Let me, let me just read it to you. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. <laughs> now, gang, what word in, those, in that verse did you not understand? What is it about all those so monosyllabic words that you didn't get? Uh, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They're going to kill me. Okay, got it. And after I'm killed, I'm going to rise the third day. What didn't you get? What didn't you understand about those very simple words? What happened to these guys? <laughs> they were taught this some ten times. And not only that, ladies and gentlemen, they witnessed one. That is the resurrection. 
They were with him in John 11 when he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. What is it about you guys that didn't get this? I mean, did your ears stop working every time Jesus mentioned it? How could you miss it? Why did you miss it? Not a one of them, not a one of them, ladies and gentlemen, ever expected it. And, and it's these guys who had already witnessed a real resurrection in Lazarus. Now, let, let, let's, let's kind of get this straight. You've got a great teacher, Jesus Christ. You've got great teaching from Jesus Christ repeatedly, over and over and over again, he taught them. And then they witnessed one, Lazarus. But they still didn't get it. They still missed it. How? How could you possibly miss it? Well, b before I answer that question, and, I, and I'm going to before we're finished, I promise, I want you to see another passage, okay? So I hope you've got your Bible still open. Find with me again the third gospel writer, Luke, and turn to the 16th chapter. Luke 16. Now, all I'm trying, what overcame me as I studied the text is everybody missed it. Guys who had seen one, who had heard him teach it ten times, came, Jesus was the teacher, they still missed it. Now, what I want to show you, I'm not going to read this whole story here, but this is a story about the rich man and Lazarus. If, you, um, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, let me take, just kind of skim the surface of the story. It's, um, it's somewhat of a, a parabolic story. I, I, people disagree as to whether Jesus is telling about real people or not, but, you know, it's not important. But there was a rich man, and there was a guy by the name of Lazarus. And the rich man lived sumptuously, and the Lazarus didn't. I mean, he had, uh, he had very little to eat, and he was eating crumbs off the floor. And he, anyway, they both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man doesn't. And the rich man, while experiencing separation from God that we call hell, is in utter agony, and he's crying out for a drop of water to, be, to touch his lips. And, and uh, heaven answers and says, sorry, we can't do that. There is a great gulf fixed. That's in verse 26 of Luke 16. And so the rich man, while in hell, says, okay, okay, I understand that I'm not going to be able to cross over from here to there, and you're not going to be able to cross over from there to here. But could you listen up just for a second? I've got five brothers that are still alive. Would you send somebody to tell my brothers that they must escape this place? And uh, the answer from heaven is, no, no, no. Uh, uh, we uh, Let them hear uh, Moses and the prophets. Now look at verse 30 and 31 of Luke 16 with me. And he said, that is, the rich man is saying to heaven, Oh, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, notice the reply. No, Mr. Rich Man, you got that wrong. That's not what's going to happen. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, gang, here's what the rich man thought. The rich man mistakenly thought that 
that people who witness a resurrection would be so converted, so changed, that that would change them forever. And Jesus says, no, it's not true. Um, just witnessing a resurrection won't change you. Now, fast forward with me to the 21st century. The resurrection that we're celebrating today is the best attested fact in the history of man. And we well-meaning Christians, we are so eager to see our friends and loved one and neighbors come to know Jesus Christ that we go to them and we parade all of these facts and these evidences and these proofs of the rest. And there are lots of them, gang. We, we, we just inundate our, uh, our friends with these proofs of the resurrection that demonstrate without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ has resurrected. But gang, we're making the same mistake of the rich fella, parading all those proofs, all those evidence in front of a non-Christian. We're thinking that that will most certainly convert him. But it won't. Now, don't mistake me, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, the evidences are very useful. They're very encouraging, aren't they? At least to us who are believers. Um, all those proofs of the resurrection just assure us that you and I have not committed intellectual suicide. But gang, in the flesh, you can weigh all the evidences you care to. You can hear it taught. You can even witness one. And you will still bring burial spices to the cemetery. <laughs> we are talking about a group of people who heard it taught by Jesus for three years, witnessed the resurrection, and on their way to the cemetery, they stopped off at the store to pick up burial spices. Gang, um, in the flesh, nobody will ever get this. Uh, left to ourselves, we will always bring burial spices. And we will perform some kind of religious rite with our burial spices. That's because that's the religion we know. That's the religion that we're comfortable with. Uh, some kind of religious hootenanny. Um, a religion that has as its centerpiece the one who conquered death. Evidences won't take you there. If anybody should have been brought there, it should have been Mary, Mary Magdalene, Salome, and the rest of the guys, but none of them got there. And they weren't taught by wild-eyed Jimmy Young. They were taught by Jesus for three years. They even witnessed one. They, they missed it. Gang, laying hold of the risen Christ will never be accomplished in the flesh. And that's my point. 
the thing that so stood out about this text is that if anybody, if anybody should have gotten it, if anybody should have believed it, if anybody should have prepared for it, if anybody should have anticipated it, if anybody should have been excited about it, it should have been those folks. But they stopped by the store and bought some burial spices on the way to cemetery. Leading me to conclude that saving faith is impossible. <laughs> Saving faith, coming to the place where you lay hold of a risen Christ, that, ladies and gentlemen, is impossible to the flesh. And I say to you, that is very consistent with what the New Testament teaches. It teaches this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Um, do you know the story about uh, the two men on the road to Emmaus? Here they're walking around and just, um, you know, Jesus is telling them all this stuff and they still don't know. There's an interesting statement in verse 31 of chapter 24 of Luke. He says, and he opened their eyes to see him. Because, ladies and gentlemen, primarily their eyes were blind. Because in the flesh, you'll never make it to a resurrected Christ. In and of yourself, left to yourself, you will always bring burial spices and, and, and perform some kind of religious shenanigan because that's what we're comfortable with. That's what we know. But ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you, everything that we ever get from God, we always get via a gift. Our understanding of things is that we must earn it, perform for it. And we're convinced that if we just don't drop one of those spinning plates, then we will earn God's blessing. Gang, what we seem to keep forgetting is that the things that you get from God, He only gives them away. Because faith, in this God, in this resurrected Savior, is impossible to the flesh. It is God who grants eyes to see and hear, ears to hear. Sure, Jimmy, uh, I understand that God made the stars, you know, but, but your life will never amount to very much if you don't hustle. Gang, Christianity is not something that we get good at. As if, as if we could learn it better or refine our skills like some kind of dance routine. You know, gang, I, I think sometimes we talk about faith. I mean, the stuff that takes you to heaven. We talk about faith as if it were some kind of possession. And we encourage each other to have faith and, and keep the faith. And the last thing in the world we'd ever want to do is lose the faith. But, but that, that idea kind of reduces faith to some kind of tool that we can use to achieve all of our goals in life. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible does not describe faith as if it were something that you and I owned. 
It describes faith as something that owns you and I, you and me. Gang, the faith that leads to eternal life is a gift. It is impossible to the flesh. I, I, I would even go so far as to say that nothing that will ever bring you happiness you will get by some kind of human achievement. You know, the Bible talks about a good wife as a favor. I mean, you got one of those? I hope you do. I do. Your kids are called gifts from God. And if you ever, if you are ever to get a new soul, it will come to you via a gift. And my friend, if you insist on hunting it down, if you insist on tracking down what God simply wants to give you, you're going to miss it. If you insist on seeking to earn that which God wants to give away, I'm saying to you, my friend, you will never have it. Because in the flesh, you will never arrive at a risen Savior. What you will do is stop by the store and get some burial spices on your way to the cemetery. You know, I, I, I say again, 20th, 21st century man understands the gospel as some kind of self-improvement plan, some kind of do-it-yourself kit, some kind of Home Depot project. It's, it's a religion that keeps telling its adherents to try harder. It's the message that we get at school. It's the message we get at work. It's the message we may even get at home. But I say to you, my friend, it's not Christianity. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that God is impressed with how hard we're trying. My friend, you don't get rid of the bad part that you know is in you. You don't get rid of the bad by trying harder. What you must do is nothing. You must receive the gift of eternal life. If you've never done that, then I want to say to you, resurrected people don't impress you much. Just like the statement in Luke 16, if you are here today and never having received the gift of eternal life, I say to you, resurrection, Easter, not that big a deal. But may I, may I say why it's a big deal to us? Can I tell you why Easter is such a big deal for the believer, for the one who set aside all of his hustling and, and simply embraced the gift of God? I, I'll tell you a story which I thought was illustrative. I'm told that on Long Island, even today, there are some old Victorian homes that were built at the first part of the century or maybe earlier when that, that little village was supported by the whaling industry. And in those Victorian homes, there is right at the top of the roof a small little room that is called the Widow's Watch. And you can imagine what the little room called the Widow's Watch was. 
the widow's watch was a room where the wives of these seamen went to, to pray for their husbands while they were at sea. And they would long to have their husbands return, and they would sit in the widow's watch and wait for their husbands to return. And even after they had been told that the ship was lost at sea, they went to the widow's watch, hoping beyond hope that there was through some miracle their husbands would return to them. Now my point is this. Do you know why Easter is such a big deal for us as the believer? Because we Christians live in a widow's watch. We're living in a little room watching for an ending that defies all odds. We are people who are counting on something that comes after death. We are the people who believe that because of this event known as Easter, that we can hope in a life after death. We are a people who sit in the widow's watch and wait we wait for our heavenly husband to get home and to take us home with him. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we got to that position, not because we're smarter than you are, not because we're better than you are, not because we're holier than you are. We got there because there was a time when we reached out with the hand of a beggar to receive the gift of a king. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, in the flesh, you will never come to saving faith because it's a gift. <clears throat> Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for truth this morning. We thank you for the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and just that hope that we have anchored our lives to. Father, we pray that as we close our service today, that if there are those who, who have been moved by the preaching of the word, who would like to know more about this gospel of grace, we pray, Father, that you would uh, not let them rest. Stir them, Father. Make them uncomfortable. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to close our service like we do every Sunday. It's a twofold invitation. First, to those of you who have completed our new members class and you have gone through the interview process, this is a time we invite you to come forward and we would like to introduce you to the family of Grace Advance. It's a good Sunday to do that. And secondly, as I've prayed this morning, if... Uh, if you would like to know more about this gospel of grace that we've heard preached today, we would love to talk with you. The way we do that here at Grace is after the service is over, we...